Section 2 of The Quest of the Golden Girl by Richard Le Gallienne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Comprised of Book 1, Chapters 5 through 9. Chapter 5 Concerning the Perfect Woman and Therefore Concerning All Feminine Readers. As I once more got under way, my thoughts slowly loitered back to the theme which had been occupying them before I dropped to sleep. What was my working hypothesis of the perfect woman, towards whom I was thus leisurely strolling? She might be defined, I reflected, as the woman who is worthy of us. But the improbability which every healthily conceited young man must feel of ever finding such a one made the definition seem a little unserviceable. Or, if you prefer, since we seem to be dealing with impossibilities, we might turn about and more truly define her as the woman of whom we are worthy, for whom, dare say, that she exists. If again she were defined as the woman, our more fortunate friend marries, her unapproachableness would rob the definition of any practical value. Other generalizations proving equally unprofitable, I began scientifically to consider in detail the attributes of the supposititious paragon, attributes of body and mind and heart. This was soon done. But again, as I thus conned all those virtues which I was to expect united in one unhappy woman, the result was still unsatisfying, for I began to perceive that it was really not perfection that I was in search of. As I added virtue after virtue to the female monster in my mind, and the result remained still inanimate and unalluring, I realized that the lack I was conscious of was not any new perfection, but just one or two honest human imperfections. And this, try as I would, was just what I could not imagine. For, if you reflect a moment, you will see that, while it is easy to choose what virtues we would have our wife possess, it is all but impossible to imagine those faults we would desire in her, which I think most lovers would admit add piquancy to the loved one, that fascinating wayward imperfection which paradoxically makes her perfect. Faults in the abstract are such and also uninviting, not to say alarming, but associated with certain eyes and hair and tender little gowns. It is curious how they lose their terrors, and as with vice in the poet's image, we end by embracing what we began by dreading. You see the fault becomes a virtue when it is hers. The treason prospers, wherefore, no doubt, the impossibility of imagining it. What particular fault will suit a particular unknown girl is obviously as difficult to determine as in what colors she will look her best. So, I say, I plied my brains in vain for that becoming fault. It was the same whether I considered her beauty, her heart, or her mind. 
a charming old Italian writer, has laid down the canons of perfect feminine beauty with much nicety in a delicious discourse, which, as he delivered it in a sixteenth-century Florentine garden to an audience of beautiful and noble ladies, an audience not too large to be intimate and not too small to be embarrassing, it was his delightful good fortune and privilege to illustrate by pretty and sly references to the characteristic beauties of several of the ladies seated like a ring of roses around him thus he would refer to the shape of madonna lampiada's sumptuous eyelids and to her shell-like ears to the correct length and shape of madonna amarissa's nose to the lily towers of madonna vestespina's throat nor would the unabashed old florentine shrink from calling attention to the fairness of madonna selvaggia's covering up her dainty bosom just as he was about to discourse upon those two hills of snow and roses with two little crowns of fine rubies on their peaks how could a man lecture if his diagrams were going to behave like that then feigning a tiff he would close his manuscript and all the ladies with their bird-like voices would beseech him with oh no monsieur firenzola please go on again it is so charming while as if by accident madonna selvaggia's moon-like bosom would once more slip out its heavenly silver perceiving which messer firenzola would open his manuscript again and proceed with his sweet learning happy firenzola oh days that are no more by selecting for his illustrations one feature from one lady and another from another monsieur firenzola built up an ideal of the beautiful woman which were she to be possible would probably be as faultily faultless as the perfect woman were she possible moreover much about the same time as firenzola was writing biotticelli's blonde angular retroussé woman were breaking every one of the beauty master's canons perfect in beauty none the less the lovers then and perhaps particularly now have found the perfect beauty in faces to which messer firenzuola would have denied the name of face at all by virtue of a quality which indeed he has tabulated but which is too far elusive and undefinable too spiritual for him truly to have understood a quality which nowadays we are tardily recognizing as the first and last of all beauty either of nature or art the supreme truly divine because the materialistically unaccountable quality of charm o loveliest and best loved face that ever hallowed the eyes that now seek for you in vain such was your strange and lunar magic such of the light not even death could dim and such may be the loveliest and best-loved face for you who are reading these pages faces a little understood on earth because they belong in heaven there is indeed only one law of beauty on which we may rely 
that it invariably breaks all the laws laid down for it by the professors of aesthetics. All the beauty that has ever been in the world has broken the laws of all previous beauty and unwillingly dictated laws to the nature that succeeded it, laws which that beauty has no less spiritedly broken to prove in turn dictator to its successor. The immortal sculptors, painters, and poets have always done exactly what their critics forbade them to do. The obedient in art were always the forgotten. Likewise, beautiful women have always been a law unto themselves. Who could have prophesied in what way any of these inspired lawbreakers would break the law? What new type of perfect imperfection they would create? So we return to the perfect woman, having gained this much knowledge of her, that her perfection is nothing more or less than her unique, individual, charming imperfection, and that she is simply the woman we love, and who is fool enough to love us. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 In which the author anticipates discontent on the part of his reader. But come, I imagine some reader complaining, isn't it high time for something to happen? Well, no doubt it is, but what am I to do? I am no less discontented. Is it not even more to my interest than to the readers for something to happen? Here I have been tramping along since breakfast time, and now it is late in the afternoon, but never a feather of her dove's wings, never a flutter of her angel's robes have I seen. It is disheartening, for one naturally expects to find anything we seek a few minutes after starting out to seek it, and I confess that I expected to find my golden mistress within a very few hours of leaving home. However, had that been the case, there would have been no story, as the novelists say, and I trust, as he goes on, the reader may feel with me that that would have been a pity. Besides, with that provision given to an author, I am strongly of opinion that something will happen before long, and if the worst comes to the worst, there is always that story of my first love wherewith to fill the time. Meanwhile, I am approaching a decorative old Surrey town, little more than a cluster of ripe old inns, to one of which I have much pleasure in inviting the reader to dinner. End of chapter 6 Book 1, Chapter 7 Prandial Dinner! Is there a more beautiful word in the language? Dinner! Let the beautiful word come as a refrain to and fro this chapter. Dinner! Just eating and drinking, nothing more, but so much. Drinking, indeed, has had its laureates, yet would I offer my might of prose in its honor. When I say drinking, I speak not of smuggled gin or of brandy bottles held fiercely by the neck till they are empty. Nay, but of that lonely glass in the social solitude of the tavern. Alone? but not alone, for the glass is sure to bring a dream to bear it company, and it is a poor dream that cannot raise a song. 
and what greater felicity than to be alone in a tavern with your last new song just born and yet still a tingling part of you drinking has indeed been sung but why i have heard it asked have we no eating songs for eating is surely a fine pleasure many practice it already and it is becoming more general every day i speak not of the finicking joy of the gourmet but the joy of an honest appetite in ecstasy the elemental joy of absorbing quantities of fresh simple food mere roast lamb new potatoes and peas of living green it is indeed an absorbing pleasure it needs all our attention you must eat as you kiss so exacting are the joys of the mouth talking for example the quiet eye may be allowed to participate and sometimes the ear where the music is played upon a violin and that a stradivarius a well-kept lawn with six hundred years old cedars and a twenty feet yew hedge will add distinction to the meal nor should one ever eat without a seventeenth-century poet in an old yellow-leaved edition upon the table not to be read of course any more than the flowers are to be eaten but just to make music of association very softly to our thoughts some dinners have wine too upon the table and in the pauses of thinking what a divine mystery dinner is they eat for dinner is a mystery a mystery of which even the greatest chef knows but little as a poet knows not with all his lore wherefore he sang or whence the mandate sped even our digestion is governed by angels said blake and if you will resist the trivial inclination to substitute bad angels is there really any greater mystery than the process by which beef is turned into brains and beer into beauty every beautiful woman we see has been made out of beefsteaks it is a solemn thought and the finest poem that was ever written came out of a grey pulpy mass such as we make brain sauce of and with these grave thoughts for grace let us sit down to dinner dinner End of chapter 7 Book 1, chapter 8 Still Prandial What wine shall we have? I confess I am no judge of wines, except when they are bad. Tonight I feel inclined to allow my choice to be directed by sentiment, and as we are on so pretty a pilgrimage, would it not be appropriate to drink Liebfraumilch? Hock is full of fancy, and all wines are by their very nature full of reminiscence, the golden tears and red blood of summers that are gone. Forgive me, therefore, if I grow reminiscent. Indeed, I fear that the hour for the story of my first love has come. But first notice the waitress. I confess, whether beautiful or plain, not too plain, women who earn their own living have a peculiar attraction for me i hope the golden girl will not turn out to be a duchess as old campion sings i care not for those ladies who must be wooed and prayed give me kind amaryllis the wanton country maid 
town maids too of the same pattern whether in town or country give me the girls that work the girls that work but evidently it is high time we begin a new chapter end of book one chapter eight book one chapter nine the legend of hebe or the heavenly housemaid yes i bless to admit it my first love was a housemaid so was she known on this dull earth of ours but in heaven in the heaven of my imagination at all events she was of course a goddess how she managed to keep her disguise i never could understand to me she was so obviously dea certe the nimbus was so apparent yet no one seemed to see it but me i have heard her scolded as though she were any ordinary earthly housemaid and i have seen the butcher's boy try to flirt with her without a touch of reverence maybe i understood because i saw her in that early hour of the morning when even the stony memnon sings in that mystical light of the young day when divined exiled things condemned to rough bondage through the noon are for a short magical hour their own celestial selves their unearthly glory as yet unhidden by any earthly disguise neither fairies nor fauns dryads or nymphs of the forest pools have really passed away from the world you have only to get up early enough to meet them in the meadows they rarely venture abroad after six all day long they hide in uncouth enchanted forms they change maybe to a field of turnips and i have seen a farmer priding himself on a flock of sheep that i knew were really a most merry company of dryads and fawns in disguise i had but to make the sign of the cross sprinkle some holy water upon them and call them by their sweet secret names and the whole rout had been off to the woods with mad gamble and song before the eyes of the astonished farmer it was so with hebe she was really a little golden-haired blue-eyed dryad whose true home was a wild white cherry tree that grew in some scattered woodland behind the old country house of my boyhood in springtime how that naughty tree used to flash its silver nakedness of blossoms for miles across the foors and scattered birches i might have known it was hebe alas it no longer bears its bosom with so dazzling a prodigality for it is many a day since it was uprooted the little dryad long since fled away weeping fled away said evil tongues fled away to the town well do i remember our last meeting returning home one evening i met her at the lodging gate hurrying away our loves had been discovered and my mother had shuddered to think that so pagan a thing had lived so long in a christian house i vowed ah oh, what did i not vow and then we stole sadly together to comfort our aching hearts under cover of the woodland for the last time the wild cherry tree bloomed wonderful blossom glittering with tears and gloriously radiant with stormy lights of wild passion and wilder hopes my faith lived valiantly till the next spring it was hebe 
who was faithless. The cherry tree was dead, for its dryad had gone, fled, said evil tongues, fled away to the town. But as yet, in the time to which my thoughts return, our sweet secret mornings were known only to ourselves. It was my custom then to rise early, to read Latin authors, thanks to Hebe, still unread. I used to light my fire and make tea for myself, till one rapturous morning I discovered that Hebe was found of rising early too, and that she would like to light my fire and make my tea. After a time she began to sweeten it for me, and then she would sit on my knee, and we would translate Catullus together into English kisses, for she was curiously interested in the learned tongue. How lovely she used to look with the morning sun turning her hair to golden mist, and dancing in the blue deeps of her eyes. And once, when by chance she had forgotten to fasten her gown, I caught glimpses of a bosom that was like two happy handfuls of wonderful white cherries. She wore a marvelous little printed gown, and here I may say that I have never to this day understood objections which were afterwards raised against my early attachment to print. The only legitimate attachment to print stuff, I was told, was to print stuff in the form of blouse, tennis, or boating costume. Yet, thought I, I would rather smuggle one of those little print gowns into my berth than all the silks a seafaring friend of mine takes the trouble to smuggle from far away Cathay. However, everyone to his taste, for me, quote, no silken madam, by your leave, though wondrous, wondrous she be, can lure this heart upon my sleeve from the little pink print he be. Close quote. For I found beneath that pretty print such a heart as seldom beats beneath your satin, warm and wild as a bird's, I used to put my ear to it sometimes to listen if it beat right. Ah, reader, it was like putting your ear to the gate of heaven. And once I made a song for her, which ran like this. There grew twin apples high on a bough, within an orchard fair. The tree was all of gold, I vow, and the apples of silver were. And whoso kisseth those apples high, who kisseth once is a king, who kisseth twice shall never die, who kisseth thrice, oh, were it I, may ask for anything. He be blushed, and for answer whispered something too sweet to tell. Dear little head, sunning over with curls, were I to meet you now, what would happen? Ah, to meet you now were too painfully to measure the remnant of my youth. End of Book One, Chapter Nine End of Section Two